Hello and welcome to another episode of 1% Wiser with me, Jamie Green. Uh, today we're talking about decisions, about making better decisions, overcoming bias and feeling better about the decisions you've taken in life. To discuss this topic with me, I have on the show today, Nika Kabiri. Nika spent more than 20 years studying how people make decisions in a variety of contexts and working with both individuals and businesses to make better decisions. She's a faculty member at the University of Washington, where she teaches graduate and undergraduate courses on decision science, and she has a PhD in sociology from the University of Washington. Her best-selling book is called Money Off the Table, Decision Science and the Secret to Smart Investing, and it's available, of course, on Amazon and other bookstores. The ability to make uh, good decisions plays a central role in the quality of our lives, so it's a topic of critical importance, I think, for all of us. And it's something that many of us struggle with, including myself. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nika Kabiri. Hi, Nika. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Maybe you could just start us off with uh, telling us who you are and, and what it is that you do. Yeah. So my name is Nika Kabiri. I do decision science, which is basically helping both businesses and individuals make better decisions. I do this by helping them understand an optimal way, an optimal way of choosing, like giving them kind of a blueprint for, for decision-making, but then also acting as a referee to make sure that biases and mental shortcuts and social influences don't get them off track. Because oftentimes, even when we have a blueprint, we don't follow it. <laughs> because we're very human that way. And I've studied decision-making often on in various different contexts, not often on, but just in various different contexts for about 20 or so years. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And you also, you teach uh, this as well, right? Yes. Um, at the University of Washington. So what, yeah. what are kind of the main areas or um, fields that you draw on in, in your work? Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why I found decision science an interesting field to develop because I think it's relatively new. It's mostly associated with sort of the data sciences, like trying to understand decision-making through data analysis, mostly in businesses. But I think what really intrigued me was that there was a, there's a lot of talk about how people make poor decisions in behavioral economics. There's a lot of study in the field of sociology about how decisions, social institutions, and how those institutions then in turn influence our decisions. But there wasn't a lot of kind of talking to each other. I mean, there are behavioral economists do incorporate social network theory or some other sociological principles into their work. But I felt like there was a need for something more comprehensive and multidisciplinary, which isn't really kind of too popular in most higher education settings, but I think it's really necessary. And I, I that's really kind of what was most compelling. So with a sociology background, I have a PhD in sociology. I just saw all these instances where everything I was learning was just applying to everyday life in a very obvious way. And nobody I knew around me was really thinking of it that way. They were just thinking about publishing and becoming academics. Um, and I thought, gosh, this could really help people. And then as, you know, towards the end of my graduate studies, as rational choice theory started to be challenged by findings of behavioral economics and started learning about that, I was like, wow, I'm making a lot of these mistakes that I'm reading about. Like, why aren't we applying this to everyday life? And that's sort of where it all kind of came together and over the last 20 years sort of developed into what I'm doing now. Really interesting. You mentioned rational choice theory. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is part of your work about helping people, would you say it's about helping people become more rational in the way they make decisions? Or is that 
not really how to capture <laughs> think about it that's a, that's a great question i think we aren't rational for some very good reason. I think the rational actor, the purely rational actor is serving, is in service of their own well-being and their own benefit. They're atomistic. They they consider themselves detached from everybody else or everything else. So whatever is best for me is rational. And that's not really the best way to go. So I don't necessarily ask or encourage or even coach people or businesses to be purely rational, but I I ask them to own when they want to be rational and when they want those other influences to really play a role. In business, one great example comes in to play with this idea of um, mimetic isomorphism, which is basically this concept that says businesses sort of replicate culturally what other businesses do, or organizations do this to seem legitimate. And they often choose or adapt practices that aren't best for their organization, that don't strengthen their organization, but they signal legitimacy to the rest of the world. Now, sometimes that's what you want. Sometimes you want, you need that legitimacy. So um, maybe copying is the way to go. What I really urge my clients to do is to not just do that automatically without being aware of it, to, to right. understand when that's relevant. So that's just one one way I think about rationality and the role of that in decision-making. Right. right. And that's a, a really interesting, another idea you brought up, this mimetic isomorphism, I believe you, is that right? Mimetic isomorphism? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically copying copying other businesses. Was that kind of... Mouth, mouthful of letters, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that, I mean, this idea of copying other people, it's also something I imagine that you think about with individuals as well, right? I uh, absolutely. And and we also do this kind of a version of that without knowing it. Right. We eat what people around us eat. We believe what people around us believe. I think, for instance, I think some of the most powerful antidotes to the spread of misinformation is trying to restructure our social networks or even our social media networks so that we're interacting with different people so that we're not constantly copying those who are believing in misinformation around us. So yeah, it happens to all of us all the time. Yeah. And and how do you think about cognitive biases? Because uh, my understanding is that cognitive biases, they're, they're pretty well documented. We all, I guess, have some awareness of them. But I, I mean, I always felt like you sort of read these biases, you think, oh, yes, I can, I can understand that. And uh, but you, you, I personally felt like there's no real way to sort of eliminate them or you know apply yeah. this uh, get rid of them in your life is is that just a a pipe dream should we try to eliminate them or should we not. yeah <laughs> how, how should we think about cognitive bias that's a really good question i mean i think that people confuse bias with preference a lot of times like they say i have a bias for pop music or i have a bias for vanilla ice cream or something like that and that's that's not really what a bias is. It's that's more of a preference. A bias right. is by definition something that that's happening under the radar. It's in your blind right. spot. You can't see it. And and so to say you know your biases, you might where you have them, you might may not always know them, but I real I do believe it's possible to override the tendency to kind of just go with the flow of your biases. And, and it does involve more than just reading, thinking fast and slow and being, you know, like, oh, that's cute. Or reading, you know, a Darren Ariely book, which these are great books. Like I love these thinkers. I love these books, but it's kind of like, oh, that's cute. 
it's so cute that I have a tendency to blah, blah, blah. And translating that to actually making your life better, it requires a deeper education and it requires more consistent reinforcement. There are also hacks. If you don't employ hacks on a regular basis, if you're not trained and educated on the hacks, you won't really avoid those biases. Like one hack is whenever I make a decision, instead of asking, well, what information do I have or what do I know? I ask, what do I need to know that I don't know? It's just a way of kind of making sure that you aren't assuming like this it's a wizzyotti in behavioral economics terms that that all you you know isn't all there is to know like you're not limited to your knowledge you just detach from the problem and you ask yourself in order to make this decision what does one anyone need to know and then ask yourself how much of that do i know but if you employ these hacks and you know how to do them on a regular basis which i work with my personal consulting clients in that way training them to do that I think you can override it. I have faith. Yeah. I have to. I mean, we're, we have to. Yeah. <laughs> have to believe. Yeah. That, that's great. I mean, I've got to, I've got to ask, um, you mentioned these hacks. Are there other, I mean, uh, I assume that this is fairly specific to the individual clients maybe, but are there, staying at the general level at the moment, are there some key hacks? You mentioned one already. What do I need to know that I don't already know? Are there some key ones that you think everyone should just really keep these in their mind when they're making any type of kind of big decision or, or anything like that? Are there kind of two or three that you think, like if everyone just knew these two or three, then that oh would really improve their lives? Or is it really too specific to the individual case? I, I, think, it's, I think it's pretty specific, but are, there are some real underlying biases that are really sinister and pervasive. One, for instance, is overconfidence bias. Like to me, that is... I've heard others say this, it's the mother of all biases, and I really agree. If you have a tendency to think that you, or to believe that you know more than you do, or you can do more than you actually can, then you aren't going to be open to having biases in any other way. Like you're not going to be open Mm -hmm. to anything. So I think tackling that is the most important thing. And that really, that doesn't really mean like overconfidence bias doesn't necessarily mean that you're cocky or you're you think you know it all it just it's just kind of an assumption that you don't pay atten- you, you just don't pay attention to what you don't know so the hack of that is constantly to remind yourself i don't know enough i mean if you just rather than these self affirmation there's these positive affirmations that go around saying i'm beautiful i'm wonderful i can do it all i'm you know <laughs> i i i actually would advise the opposite i don't know enough that doesn't mean I'm stupid. It just means there's more to know. I don't, I'm not as capable as I think very objectively. Again, no judgment. That's the other kind of part of it. No judgment. I think if we kind of remind ourselves of that, then we're always primed to look for more information when we make our choices and we aren't making poor choices because they'll be better informed. That's one. I think another one that's not so maybe prevalent, but that's kind of funny that I've noticed is really the sunk cost fallacy. Like I think in so many aspects of our lives, we stick with situations because it's where, you know, like, oh, I've been with this in this relationship for five years. I put five years into it. I'm not going to give up now. Well, your future is ahead of you. You know, your past is behind you. Like maybe giving up could give you five years of something great. And I think just, just that to me is just an awareness thing, just a reminder of my life starts here. My life starts now. Nothing behind me really counts. It doesn't matter. What is, what is that about? 
Just a couple examples. Yeah, you can only affect your decisions going forward. You can't affect what you've yeah. already what you've already decided. Yeah. Why let the past mire you down? Absolutely. Um, Another thing I was thinking about uh, when when considering this interview was was whether whether it's just getting harder to make more make decisions nowadays because we have to make so many more decisions in our lives than perhaps our parents or our grandparents did even down to very trivial things when you go to the supermarket and there are 400 brands of toothpaste and there's you know you're trying to get the the best brand of socks and you you know you want to get the the best hotel and there's 5000 hotels in the city to choose from do you think we we all just suffer a bit more from decision fatigue and we don't have enough left in the tank for the for the big decisions i would i would say that's that's Probably so. This really speaks to decision complexity and perhaps the volume of decisions we have to make. I think this is not based on any historical analysis or any study of decision making or anything like that. But if I were just to hypothesize, I would say we have more options available. (laughs) We have different options have different, more complex trade-offs. And I think we also may make more decisions during the day because of our complex lives, right? Mm. Um, And the more complex decisions get, the harder it is to make them. It's just pretty simple. If you have a very clear decision, there's no ambiguity in what you're trying to decide. There's no, like, there aren't like 20 options. There are just three. And there's a clear winner, you're not going to get too tired. Mm. That's not, I think you're right. Just go to the grocery store and look at the soda can aisle. I mean, (laughs) or the potato chip aisle, right? Like it can get complex if you really think it through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I I wonder if at a certain point having all this, all the, all the choice, it can often, or it can in, in a way make us less happy with our choices. Right. I th- I think it makes us more fatigued and I th- and I I have actually just published a guide on my website on yournextdecision.com about decision fatigue mm. and how it's really important to protect your brain from it because the more the more decisions you make the more fatigued you get and the more complex they are the more fatigued you get the more fatigued you get the poorer your your future decisions and as you make f- poor decisions, obviously the consequences are being less satisfied or less happy or not being mm. where you want to be. So again, there are hacks and you could check out the guide, but there are hacks to protect your brain from those many complex decisions, putting, you know, making, I don't know, putting less emphasis on reversible decisions, for instance, mm. taking time if you have it. Sometimes we rush through decisions when we don't have to, we can sleep on it and rest and make the decision the next day. But but yeah, I do think it kind of leads to less satisfaction. I do think that also we live in a day and age, we always talk about how the internet's changed everything, but it really, really has. It's not cliche. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's never going to be a tired saying because it's right. so relevant, but we are inundated with information. And one of the most difficult things to do in making decisions is not just having a, a lot of information, but making sure you know which inf- bits of information are relevant to your decision. And sometimes we are just taking in so much and we don't spend that time to kind of just, this isn't relevant. I don't need to know this. We soak it in. We want to know it and we get exhausted and we get overburdened with data that we don't need. That could also lead to poor information, poor decision-making. Right. Right. 
Gosh, so many, so many pitfalls. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, endless. We're, and, we're set up for failure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> endless pitfalls. I, I, I mean, I, I was. I'm curious now to to think a little bit about. I was thinking about some personal situations that I sometimes struggle and, and decisions in particular, and uh, some area that just just for not to turn this into a therapy session, but rather to <laughs> help draw out maybe some examples that are interesting for people and how you would how you would tackle them. So so to give an example, I personally, what I struggled with was around, around f- first of all, in, in a difficult decision, because obviously, if it's an easy decision, then you don't have a, you don't need decision science, I imagine. <laughs> but so for a difficult decision, and to give the concrete example, I, I applied for and accepted a job last about a year ago. And then I really wasn't sure about the job and I sort of struggled with the decision to take it or not. And then I flip-flopped for rather a while and then ended up not taking it. And then I proceeded to beat myself up about not taking it for the <laughs> for the next sort of eight months or so. So there's obviously, yeah. you know, and I realized like th- this is not a very healthy way of making a decision. So I wonder if you have any suggestions first for the kind of first phase of making a decision, how you can avoid getting into this flip-flopping um back and forth should i shouldn't i what are some of the hacks you you mentioned maybe what are some of the tips or tricks you'd you'd give to somebody you know this that decision is is long past in my life but for somebody in a similar situation who's faced with a big decision and it seems to them quite finely balanced they don't have a strong feeling one way or another is it just about trying to get more data is it about speaking to more friends or family about the decision what what are some of the key things that people should be doing to try to think in that phase and then uh, and then how can you feel better about the decisions that you take uh, right or... right that dreaded regret that i think when you are in in the throes of a decision it's not obvious they the options seem kind of equal but you know it's on some level they can't be there has to be one better way I think one thing that people don't tend to do is think clearly through the what if scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, what if I take this job and my manager is a jerk? What if I take this job and my manager is not a jerk? That's that's one set of conditions or like or what if scenarios is what I call them. What if you take the job and then the next day another job that's better lands on your lap? What if you take the job and it turns out to you know launch you toward a career that you never wanted we don't think through all of those what ifs very carefully and we also more importantly don't think about the likelihoods of each of those what ifs sometimes we think oh my gosh wouldn't it be awful if this manager was the worst manager ever but we don't calculate well what is the likelihood of that and then when we do think of that We don't look at evidence. We look at experience. Like, well, the last five managers I had were terrible. So the chances are this one's going to be terrible. Well, this one doesn't know those others. (laughs) You know, this it's, there's no real reason or evidence to suspect that those other managers or your past experiences or your recollections, this is the availability heuristic playing now, that your recollections of past events are going to really be a good you know, for, forecasting tool for future events, we we don't really do a good job of that. So, I mean, one way to do that better is let's look at the data. Like what proportion of managers are, are terrible? Like there is, you can Google it. There've been studies, I'm sure, on how many people hate their managers. So that's a good indication of the likelihood that your manager will be terrible. And then once you have that real hard evidence, 
you can make a better decision. You can feel more confident about your decision. I think that calculation, even just thinking about the what ifs and their likelihoods, but then accurately calculating them, that's where people kind of go wrong. And when I work with clients, oftentimes, once I just ask them, well, what's the likelihood? It just all of a sudden becomes clear to them like, oh, Mm -hmm. very high or, oh my gosh, pretty low or low enough or whatever it is. And they, they know what they want to do. Mm. Um, so that's one, there are many ways to prevent making bad decisions. But if I were to give one bit of advice, that would be it. Think about the what if conditions and then, right. Yeah. As far as regret goes, I think hindsight bias is a real thing. It's Mm. not just kind of acute. Oh, hindsight's 2020. It's the brain has a, sometimes have a hard, has a hard time distinguishing or determining when you first learned information. And it, we forget that when we make our decisions, we don't have the information that we would have later. So when we look back, we know that we're looking back, but we kind of forget what we knew then. Hmm. That doesn't mean that what we knew then was complete or that we knew everything we should have. We can always learn a little bit more, but it kind of takes you off the hook a little bit. Like you might regret your job now because of things that have happened since then. You had no way of Mm. predicting. So why are you beating yourself up about it? Like events just sort of happened. And there's so much more at play in how decisions turn out than just what you decide. Mm. The world's a messy place, a lot of variables going on. You know, COVID could happen. You don't, can't predict some things. So on the one hand, I really do encourage all of us to be more, to own our decisions more as we're making them, but to also recognize that we have limited control over the outcome and we can't judge the outcome or we can't judge our decisions by our outcomes. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You have to separate the result sometimes, or sometimes you have to separate the result from when yeah. you made a good decision, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, like my boxing coach would say, you know, if you're if you're in a bout, you get hit, you got hit, shake it off, turn the page, start from scratch. Like you're just starting right. where you are. Golfers say the same thing. Oh, I'm in the rough. Doesn't matter how I got here. I'm here now. How do I get out of it? That kind of mindset's super helpful. Right, right, exactly. And and also, I, I always think like there's the, you know, you think about statistics, If you, as I know you, you do with your decisions. Like if you think something is sort of 80% likely to happen and or, or 80% likely not to happen, 20% likely to happen, and then it happens, it doesn't mean just because it was 80% likely. Okay, well, it can still happen. It's 20%, you know, it doesn't exactly. mean it was the wrong decision, <laughs> right? That's, that's a really good point. Our yeah. brains are really fast. We make quick judgments yeah. and yeah. Sometimes we think even a 2% chance is a 0% chance. There's still a chance. It could happen. We just did our best. We set ourselves up for the best chance possible. That's a good decision. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, what are kind of the main areas that people come to you for help Mm -hmm. with normally? Is it, we can separate obviously business and, and, and personal, and I'm assuming it's relationships, jobs, things like this, but are are there other things that are maybe non-obvious that you would, you would want to mention? You know, it's interesting. People come to me primarily for career advice. Right. And then second to that would be relationship advice, but they're interrelated. Yeah. I think that what I think a lot of people don't understand is as they're making career decisions, they have to take into consideration their families or their children. Mm. And they don't realize that in those conversations, 
this, this, this is not, this is not rare to have a conversation with someone in a relationship about their career suddenly turns into, well, I don't know if I want to be this with this partner anymore Mm. (laughs) because whether I'm with this partner will determine my career decision because for instance, I might want to move to another city or I might want to have a job that she doesn't like. So it's, it is all related. I think Mm. it's kind of hard to make one life decision in a vacuum and not, not another, but yeah, they've kind of veered off to friendships. Those are big ones. I don't think we often evaluate our friendships until we're faced with other bigger decisions, like, like relationships. I want to I want to get a divorce. My friends are kind of frowning down upon it. Okay, well, let's evaluate the friendships. Yeah, it's. I think that's what's really surprising to a lot of people is how related all these decisions are. Right. I mean, most of the areas we've talked about in terms of making decisions, I guess not, not you know, the most terrible decisions that people could make. But what 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 do you think? What do you think leads people to make really serious? bad decisions in their lives you know things that lend them up in in jail or anything else like that is is there some is there anything you've seen that you could say okay you know this type of sort of person or this type of type of thinking or or this you you know going down this path always leads to really terrible decisions in life how can we avoid that (laughs) everybody else (laughs) right right so you know as as we agreed earlier there's no way of knowing, you know, there's no absolutes. You can make a crappy decision and have the best outcome because (laughs) that's how we'll just turn out. Right. Um, so it's all about the chances. And I believe hands down, you dramatically reduce your chances of success in life when your decisions are impulsive. Um, when your decisions are based, what a lot of people say is the best way to make decisions, which is trust your gut. Um, your gut is a kind of a bias absorption machine. It's it's just, it, it is a culmination of your personal experiences, your personal memories, things that, you know, facts and, and information that just happen to resonate with you. It's not objective. Just because you trust your gut and things always turn out okay, it doesn't mean they actually do. You might just remember when they do and don't remember when they don't. The chances are prime are dramatically reduced if you go on impulse, go on what you call instinct or just, I feel it, I'm going to act it. That's, I think, where a lot of people end up, like you said, in jail, cheating on their spouses, quitting jobs they shouldn't quit. Right, yeah. Yeah. Take take a bit more time to think things through. Yeah, and manage your emotions. (laughs) Right. Not by making decisions, but before you make your decisions. Right. Right. Don't don't allow, don't look to your choices to make you feel better, because mm. you won't make good choices, or the chances are are poor. Try to find ways to manage your your negative feelings, and then make your choice. Right. I wonder. Speak. You know, we've talked quite a bit about tools and hacks, and one I was thinking about recently was the idea of a decision journal. And I was curious to hear your opinions on on such a thing. Is that something that you recommend to clients ever or, or you think they are useless? If you do recommend them, what are the, what are the yeah. specific ways that you would recommend using a decision journal? I have advised clients to journal not 
after they make a decision, but in the process of making a decision right. to document evidence in the most objective way possible. One example is advising a client on their career decision. And one consideration in making the decision is whether she is given opportunity to, oh, I just, I'll just think of something hypothetical. If she is given opportunity to shape hmm. the, the strategy of her team as opposed to just execute? Like, does her voice matter in shaping the direction of what her team does? And that is to her a deal breaker. Like if she can't shape the the business or her team, if she has no voice, if she's just a doer and not a thinker, she doesn't want to have that job. So how do you know that? I mean, well, you can look back in time and ask yourself, well, how many times was I asked to contribute to strategy? And you're going to have likely a biased evaluation because you're only going to remember the things you remember. <laughs> you're only going to bring up those those situations you recall, and you're most likely to recall things that are emotionally charged, and you're most likely to be emotionally charged by things that are negative. So you might not recall all the times that you were asked to contribute. You might just be, recall the times you weren't. So I advised her to journal every day, like every time, like objectively, you were asked to contribute, write it down. Every time you asked and were reject, it was rejected, write it down and then just count it up. Like it's data that right. I really recommend it. It's in real time. It avoids you having to rely on recollection and memory for right. forecasting, for evidence to calculate those likelihoods. Right. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. Yeah. I, I've, I've used it a little bit in the past. And as you say, it's really helpful to combat things like availability bias and Tell me how you used it. I'm curious. I I used it actually for the job decision I I, I mentioned before. I I wrote down kind of all my thoughts and, you know, I mentioned I'd sort of beat myself up about the decision afterwards. But what when I did that and what helped was going and looking back at the decision making process. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I did think this through. And that does make sense how I thought then. And I've just kind of forgotten how I thought about it. And from the perspective of at the time, and with the information I had, that was the right decision, right? And and so it right. really helped me to kind of be like, oh, I wasn't an idiot. I did think it through. I did. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think one place, one way that people do go wrong when they journal is they write only about their feelings and not about yeah. the objective events that happen. They write about what they feel. And that only heightens the recollection of those highly charged events. It's, it could actually hurt to journal only what you feel. But yeah, if you journal objective evidence or facts or events without kind of an emotional connection um, to them, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. I have a terrible memory as well. So it really helps. Uh. <laughs> we all do. That's the thing. We don't overconfidence bias. We all have bad memories. We just don't think we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have, a, I have a bad memory. I'm not too com. I don't have overconfidence in my memory, at least probably in many other areas. <laughs> I'm overconfident, but oh, this is, there's so much we, you know, we can talk about. And I'm, I'm curious, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is really critical for people to 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 know about that anything that i we've missed in our conversation so far there's so many areas you know the the biases the paradoxes of choice is there anything in making decisions that you'd like to to highlight any other hacks you think really haven't mentioned that would be critical to mention before we bring this to a close yeah only one which is Mm -hmm. that if you approach your decisions like a series of experiments as opposed to life or death situations. Not only does it lighten the load of your decision-making and make it less stressful, which would increase the chances of 
calm, thoughtful, well-made decisions, but you'll also learn from them more rather than judge from them. So I highly recommend thinking of like every decision you make, like, I'm going to try this. Just say it out loud. Like, let's try this. Let's see what happens. What can we learn rather than, oh my gosh, if I get this wrong, I I can't, I can't get this wrong. Like Mm. you'll survive. You can, you're just, just learn from it. I love that advice. I, lo- I love thinking of, of different experiments and there's life as an experiment. That's that's fantastic advice. And and finally, are there, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll link to your blog and to your resources, but is there anything else you would point people towards for yourself, obviously, but are any other, for example, books or, or courses that you'd recommend to people who want to think about getting, getting better at de- making decisions? Yeah. So there are quite a few great books out there. The Art of Thinking Clearly. I don't remember the author. I'm terrible about remembering these <laughs> names. But that's a great book. Super Forecasting is a great book. Um, thinking Fast and Slow is a great book. Any of Dan Ariely's stuff is great. But I think I think what, again, like it, it it's really challenging to draw those into your personal life and kind right. of make personal decisions. I do. I try my best to do that on my own website, which is yournextdecision.com. And um, if you subscribe, I send you every week a letter. It's not a newsletter. It's not tips. It's not like anything like that. It's just personal letters about people I know, things I've seen, things I've experienced, and how that's tied to decision-making that kind of models for you how you can apply these concepts to your everyday life, hopefully. And it's got a really great response. So I hope that more of you subscribe. Oh, thank, thanks so much. Yeah, actually, I, I, I tell a lie. I did have one more question. Yeah, I, I, I was um, curious if there's anything in your, what, is, what has changed your personal where you've made decisions. Are there any um, specific decisions that stand out in your life that you either thought I, I, I learned mm-hmm. a lot from that decision personally, or you know that was a terrible decision, and but it really put me on this path in the end, uh, and I learned about that. Or is there anything that you would uh, highlight in your own journey? Because I assume you know you're learning as we all are, and and getting making better decisions. Okay. Every day, every day, I'm like, oh my gosh, how I study this stuff. <laughs> I think for me, the most profound experience regarding decision making happened when I was in my, it started me on my journey. It happened when I was in my mid 20s and I was suffering from severe depression, severe suicidal ideation. I was in a really bad situation going through, I mean, I, I thought, you know, I was going to drop out of law school. I was going to like, my end life was going to end. I was going to therapy. I was on heavy medication. None of it was working. And, and it was just the decision. It was the choice to choose, which is, is kind of simple and small when you say it, but it is profound. It was the moment that I realized that if I was going to get out of this, it wasn't about understanding my past, even though that's useful. It wasn't about digging into my feelings, even though that's important and necessary to get out of where I was, I had to make different choices and I didn't know how, and I didn't know what they would be, but just owning that, the decision-making, like I couldn't let my therapist do it. I couldn't let my psychiatrist do it. I couldn't let my parent, I had to make the right choices. And that's what got me started, really got me started on learning decision-making because it was my, it's how I survived. It's how I, I survived. So if, if you feel like you're stuck, if you feel like you're in a bad place, like I'm proof positive that the right choices are enough 
to get you to a better place. Like hands down, my life is great now. I'm so glad that I didn't go down the dark, the dark road. Well, that, that is an amazing and powerful story and message to finish on, Nika. So thank you for telling that story. It's it's really a really touching story and powerful story. And I think hopefully many people hear that message. So thank you for sharing. And thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. I think you've shared some wonderful wisdom with us today. And I really appreciate uh, you doing that. So thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Nika. Thanks.